Welcome to Keith Knight Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today I am joined by Abigail R. Hall. She is an associate professor in economics at the University of Tampa. She has her PhD in economics from George Mason University. Check out Manufacturing Militarism, U.S. Government Propaganda in the War on Terror, as well as Tyranny Comes Home, the Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. Dr. Hall, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. What was your dissertation on? And was it under Walter Williams? Uh, no. So I actually wrote my dissertation under uh, Chris Coyne. Uh, Walter Williams and I agreed on very many things. However, I think we diverged pretty starkly on matters of foreign policy. Um, my doctoral research was on the political economy of unmanned aerial vehicles, or what are colloquially known as drones. So looking at yeah, so looking at how UAVs were used um, within the war on terror, kind of the, the development of the uh, political entanglements. So thinking about your big defense contractors, how do those relationships between, say, the likes of Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin, how do those become entrenched or entangled with, say, members of, of Congress or other political outfits, um, and then understanding how it is that those technologies may continue to be used, um, despite the fact that contrary to the popular narrative, they may not actually be as effective as proponents would have them be. It's amazing. We have a World War II general and president, Dwight Eisenhower, tell us, watch out for the military industrial complex. And we're still called crazy conspiracy theorists for thinking that, you know, there's a profit incentive to uh, to, to be made in war. It's uh, uh, there's uh, incredible research there. Uh, if people want to find your uh, dissertation, is that uh, available online? Yes, yeah, so it's um it's publicly available. I'm sure that it's through uh, George Mason. One of the easiest ways to find pretty much all of my work is ssrn.com. So you can download, I think, pretty much most of the papers that I've ever written um, for for free. Um, the other way that people can find at least uh, links to some things um, is also on my website, abigailrhall.com. Both of those links will be in the description below. What I wanted to ask you about was... One of the great propaganda methods is to sell things under the guise of their only being benefits. Should we bring democracy to the Middle East? Should we defend Ukraine as if there's no downside? When it comes to the domestic costs of war, before we get into the foreign costs, what are some of the downsides or costs that the American population has to bear because of an aggressive foreign policy? So there are lots of things that people talk about in terms of, of cost and consequences of conflict. And so you, you pointed out that oftentimes if people are talking about the cost of foreign policy, there's a tendency to focus on either the monetary cost, um, but then also people will talk about the, the human cost. So things like the number of U.S. military personnel who are killed or who are injured while engaged in foreign intervention abroad. Um, and those things are certainly important. Um, but if you're only looking at metrics that you can easily count, then you're downplaying a lot of other elements that are, are critically important for understanding the actual consequences of foreign policy. Um, and so what my co-author and I, so uh, Chris Coyne, in one of our uh, books, Tyranny Comes Home, talks specifically about the 
other types of consequences or some of the other consequences of foreign intervention, particularly within the domestic sphere. So oftentimes when we talk about foreign policy, there's this tendency to think that it is completely divorced from what's going on within the domestic space. So foreign policy is over there, wherever there happens to be. Domestic policy is here, and those two spheres are completely separate. But what we're attempting to point out in that work and elsewhere is that you can't cleanly separate those two arenas. And in fact, the tools and tactics of foreign intervention can and do come to be used domestically. So we can look at some specific consequences of that. So we look at uh, more specifically things like police militarization, the use of surveillance technologies like UAVs and so on. But the more broader or the broader point that we make within that that book is highlighting that one of the consequences of foreign intervention is the erosion of constraints that are placed upon government and potential for expansion, not just in the scale of government. So again, think about the monetary cost, how much or how big government is, but also the scope of government. So the portfolio of activities or the types of activities that government is involved in. And that is an important consequence for thinking about foreign policy, even if you are someone who is just 100% focused on the United States and you don't have any any inclination toward thinking about foreign costs at all. When it comes to saying things like, well, uh, this allows the government to grow drastically, there are some people who will just say, you know what? Uh, there are Nordic countries that have bigger governments. Things are fine there. I'm not really worried about big government. Uh, is big government just this boogeyman that uh, stupid right-wingers are throwing around? Or is it actually uh, something that uh, the average person who envies, say, the Nordic model uh, should actually uh, have second thoughts about? So there's something interesting there about people talking about big governments being threatening versus benign, let's say. And you can envision a scenario in which you have a very large government that actually doesn't do very much or one that is not particularly threatening. So like people talking about the Nordic states, you're talking about economically free countries with a very large social safety net. Um, that's profoundly different from the kind of expansions that we're primarily focused on, which again are those expansions in scope. So again, you can imagine a really large government that is not doing very much. But you could also imagine a very small government that is doing a whole lot of really nefarious things. And so I think that when we focus on maybe the size, it's not an irrelevant thing for us to think about because a lot of times we assume that the scale of government and the scope of government are correlated. So if the scale is going, growing, the scope is also growing, but that's not necessarily the case. And so one of the things that I, oftentimes suggest to people is to think about those things as potentially two separate entities and to consider each of them individually and not just consider them as one singular unit. So the logic that Paul Krugman uh, uses in arguing with zombies is that my spending is your income and your spending is my income. Therefore, when we have something like a war we really get this whole engine heavily stimulated and that leads to more spending, higher incomes, and therefore economic growth. What, if anything, is uh, wrong with that mindset? That type of, uh, like, I guess, prime the pump type of economics just causes me physical pain when, whenever I hear about it. Um, 
Because that's assuming that everything is the same. So a dollar spent is a dollar spent, but doesn't tell you anything about whether or not those dollars are being spent in a way that actually satisfy the the wants and desires of other human beings. And so one of the classic examples that we use is this. If I am given an instruction as a Soviet nail factory to produce one ton of nails, I can make one ton of really small nails that can actually be useful, or I can make one as in a singular ton nail. Both of those satisfy the the output target, but doesn't tell me, but don't tell me anything about whether or not what I've done is, is actually useful. The other thing that is complicated when we're talking about war spending, because one of my uh, guests talk about zombies and it's close to Halloween, it's an economic fallacy that just refuses to die, is when people talk about how World War II got us out of the Great Depression. No, it didn't. Um, you don't have actual monetary prices in this war economy. There's a wonderful paper by an economist named Robert Higgs that really explains that particular fallacy in pretty uh, elegant detail. So I would definitely point people to, to his work on that issue specifically. But in thinking about not only this idea that we are just, again, pumping, pumping money, it's, it goes back to the, um, that general Keynesian idea where if we're lagging in one area, so if say consumption is falling, you just pump up G and it doesn't matter what G or government spending is being spent on. So whether it's war or whether it's, you know, ditch digging, that it's going to increase prosperity. The other thing that people seem to forget about foreign conflict and war is that it actively destroys human beings and resources, which is the antithesis of actually growing wealth because you are actively engaged in destruction. So even if you want to make the argument, well, but if you destroy things, then there are people who are going to be making money building it back. Sure, but you're now having to expend resources to replace things which already existed as opposed to spending those resources on something else that could have been value added. Yeah, it's like the broken window fallacy people can appreciate that. Well, yeah, if you pay someone to repair the window that you're spending money, but now you're just back to where you were previously with less money. So you're right. worse off. But when it comes to lots of windows and buildings and people getting blown up, well, that, of course, is economic uh, growth, all, uh, the, all of us. The way that I explain it is this. And so I, I live in Florida. We recently experienced a hurricane and um, Victor Clark, who's at Florida Gulf Coast University, and I wrote a small piece um, basically taking aim at the broken window fallacy because we kept hearing these things of like, oh, like actually like these places could could build back better and like this could actually be good for the economy. And the way that we conclude that piece and the way that I've discussed this elsewhere is that if destruction is really great for economic growth, then my city of Tampa should actually be really sad that we missed the hurricane because think about all that economic growth that we were missing out on. If war is so wonderful, now again, we're kind of switching from talking about the domestic side from talking about to talking about the foreign side. But if war is so wonderful and by getting destroyed, you know, we can get all of this, you know, infrastructure built back up or we could build back better, then would we not be disappointed when we don't see like widespread destruction? Because again, think about all that economic growth that we could be missing out on. So part one of the fallacy is assuming a dollar spent arming Jabhat al-Nusra is just as good as taking your family to 
Disneyland. Uh, it's they're equating money when they shouldn't be. Um, the voluntary sector with the coercive. And then the second part of this is saying that saving is basically bad. That That is the implication almost always. That to save is to really not allow the economy to reach its full potential. What are the benefits of saving or postponing consumption? So, I mean, um, one of the things that I will always tell people is that like many economists, I am by no means a personal finance expert. <laughs> and so um, please don't ask me for personal finance advice. Um, but in terms of the the thing that people often point to is, again, a Keynesian idea, the the paradox of, of saving. So this idea that if people are saving too much, then people aren't spending. And then as a result of that, um, there's a decline in economic activity. Um, but that misses a, a couple of, of different things. Um, so one of the things that we can potentially talk about that relates to a, a number of different things that are happening right now is that, well, you, you make different decisions and different choices when you have some savings versus when you don't. Um, and if you want to talk about things like future wealth creation and you want to talk about investment and things like that, then savings are a necessary precondition for those types of activities. And so it's it's neglecting quite quite a lot. A macroeconomist would probably be able to give you a much more nuanced takedown of all of you know Keynesian's para Keynes's paradoxes. Um, but I'd I'd start with that. When you look at, uh, but once you convince people that the military sector is way too big, they'll finally concede it and say, you know what, all right, it's too big. In fact, it's so big that we can't stop and uh, we can't do anything about it because then all these people would lose their jobs and the economy would go into total recession. So once they agree with us, they say, you know what, uh, we actually can't do anything. When it comes to the mindset of there's all these people employed and for us to drastically cut back would lead to mass unemployment and then a drop in consumption and then a massive recession. What, if anything, is wrong with that? So in terms of, again, like we can make all kinds of, of predictions about what would happen, the kind of the, the knock on effects. I think, I mean, honestly, like if you were to drastically decrease the size of the U.S. military or the Department of Defense, you would be disemploying a lot of people. And so that's not, I think, a, an invalid thing that people point out. The, the relevant question, I think, is this one, is what would those people potentially be doing instead? And would those types of activities be more productive than the current activities in which they're engaged? So again, not to downplay the fact that when you have significant changes or reductions in one particular sector, that that is not painful for individuals who are working within that sector, but it ignores the other types of things that people could be could be doing and other things that people people would do. Um, and it's not, I mean, certainly you wouldn't think if someone is working as um, a military or a defense contractor who has skills in, you know, a particular area, you know, like purchasing or something like that, that they're not going to be able to transfer those skills into an alternative uh, an alternative form of employment. And so it ignores the fact that you have growth then in other sectors, whereas opposed to now channeling all of these resources into defense, you're channeling these resources into something else. How can we falsify? Uh, I'm thinking of how we can actually measure it. So the, one of the things that would come to mind is, are there any 
industries in America, which previously employed a large percentage of the population, which now employ a small percentage of the population? Are there any industries we can look at to say, used to have a lot of people here, now we don't, and it's not like they all had to be buried in Siberia. They're just working somewhere else. What well, I mean, is, what's an example of one of those industries? The, I mean, the classic example that we oftentimes use with our principal students is agriculture. And so you used to have like the vast majority of the population that had to work in order to be able to feed the small percentage of the population that was not working in agriculture. Now, of course, um, you do not have the vast majority of people working in agriculture. It's actually a relatively small segment of individuals who are working within that sector. Um, other examples that you could look at too, things like, again, using some classic examples, candlestick makers, people within the horse and buggy industry. And again, it's not saying that when these types of changes occur, that it's not painful for the individuals who are losing their jobs. So if you're someone who you've worked your entire life as a candlestick maker, and then all of a sudden here comes electricity and light bulbs, that you might not have some real difficulties in transitioning to an economy where that is no longer something that is um, as desirable. But we can talk about other policies that could potentially assist with those types of transitions. That doesn't mean that you continue to throw good money after bad into something that is ineffective, no longer valuable, um, or is, you know, the, the product of military, uh, the product of uh, bureaucratic bloating. That is a great response because you can say, well, uh, th there's uh, there's all these jobs, and if they lose their job, they don't know what they're going to do, even though there's a great number of jobs uh, that are available today, m more so than usual. But if you if your response is, well, we can actually do a number of other things to increase the likelihood that people will have more job opportunities, well, that's at least softening the blow. When it comes to how countries or how anyone can increase the number of job opportunities within a country, what are some steps they should take? So one of the things that I always suggest, and um, again, there's one of the things that is that's very true and comes through a lot in, in my work is that a lot of what I do is what I would refer to and others as diagnostic. So pointing out the, the problems of a particular issue, um, not nearly as much of it being prescriptive in terms of like, and here is what you should do. Um, because ultimately I don't have like a, a nice list or a silver bullet kind of an answer for how we fix a lot of these problems. But if you wanna talk about things like job creation or you wanna talk about things that just make people better off, we return to a lot of the basics that we think about things like trade, like allowing people the ability to freely contract with each other, um, giving people like think you know this the the permission to engage in economic activities. So some of the things that would be like low hanging domestic fruit, reducing things like occupational licensing for a variety of different types of of careers or different types of activities, allowing people more easily to, to move. So we can talk about that within the context of international borders specifically. Um, but there are lots of things like that that we could do. Reducing trade barriers is another good example. And these are all things that can 
increase productivity um, and not just domestically, but also have some really important global implications as well for individuals who um, claim to be really concerned about global poverty. There are some really internal policies that are inward focused that would likely be a lot more effective than a lot of our current policies, which are very externally focused and attempting to, quote unquote, fix whatever country it is that we're attempting to intervene in. Have you seen any cases of countries that had very large military budgets and then drastically decreased their military budget and did not experience significant economic hardship? So I think there are, there are a few different things that we would have to think about within that particular question. So obviously people think about countries like Germany and Japan who went from being very large military powers who suddenly not only are you not a military power, but you can't have a military anymore. Um, and so certainly there was pain in you know the post-World War II period in both of those places. But now you see both Japan and Germany as being very successful countries from, from an economic and, and other perspectives. Um, I'd have to, to think a bit more in terms of um, outside of kind of a post-war scenario, if you had large countries that would take their, their militaries, get them very large, and then shrink them back down. I mean, historically, if you look at U.S. data, you would see huge run-ups in the military in wartime and then significant drawdowns on military power after conflict. Um, but I'd have to think more about peacetime examples. Yeah, well, well there were the Roaring Twenties after uh, the uh, yeah. Paris 1919. Uh, there, there's a great paper called the, uh, the Great Depression of 1946, which is a play on the fact that there was no Great Depression <laughs> after the Second World War uh, took, uh, t took place. Uh, what was the most important thing you learned from your research on manufacturing militarism, U.S. government propaganda in the war on terror? Oh, man, the most important thing. That's Give a me hard... a couple of the most important things okay. you learned while doing research for that <laughs> book. Tricky. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me in researching that book is the contemporary relevance of propaganda within democratic societies. So I know a lot of people, when thinking about propaganda, they tend to associate it with autocracies, and I think rightfully so. Or if you mention democratic propaganda, they'll think about, you know, posters from World War I or World War II, things like that. But there's not really a lot of discussion of contemporary propaganda. And so one of the big takeaways from working on that book was that propaganda is still very, very much a contemporary and relevant topic within modern day democracies. So that would be the, the first thing. And then the second, I guess, most important thing would be the implications of the use, continued and historical, of propaganda, both short-term consequences and long-term consequences. Short-term consequences being that propaganda can have a significant impact on the types of policies that people do and do not support. And then in the long run, more uh, profoundly than that, is that propaganda can effectively work to undermine the types of institutions that we purport to really want to uphold and protect. How can I determine whether or not I'm watching propaganda or uh, very accurate uh, information? That's one thing that, that comes out in this research is that oftentimes it's incredibly difficult to know what it is that you're seeing. And 
Well, there are a few reasons for that, but there are two that I'll, I'll offer. So one is that there is, as your question actually highlights, there is a really serious asymmetric information problem. So when it comes to releasing information about defense or national security policy and manufacturing militarism talks exclusively about um, policies related to the national security and defense space. So you have these asymmetric information problems where the individuals who have the information know much more than the individuals who are receiving that information. And it's difficult for the layperson to really kind of make heads or tails of a lot of it. But then the other thing that you have too is that you also, in addition to these asymmetric information problems, is you have a pure monopoly on the information from the perspective of the individuals who are the uh, repositories of that information. So the Department of Defense decides what it's going to release and when. The TSA decides what it's going to release and when. Um, and people say, oh, well, you know, Freedom of Information Act request. And it's like, well, and we highlight actually one of these with respect to the TSA. Sure, I can, I can issue a FOIA request or I can submit one, but it might be eight years before I actually get the data that I've requested. And so in that case, is it, is it really helpful? And so it's, it's difficult just from those particular things. But the other thing I think that's difficult about it is that we actually encounter it quite a lot. So if you've ever watched a professional sport, either in person or on television in the last 20 years, you've likely been subjected to what the DOD calls paid patriotism, which is propaganda by another name. If you've gone to a movie theater in the last 20 years and you've seen a movie, or if you've turned on television and you've ever watched, say, a Gordon Ramsay cooking show where they are cooking for some branch of the military, congratulations, you've watched propaganda because all of those things are receiving assistance in some way from the Department of Defense. And yet people who are consuming these pieces of entertainment, they don't know. Like there's not some disclaimer like, hey, this you know film or this TV show was vetted carefully by the Department of Defense prior prior to air. Yeah, really. Uh, you can um, look at uh, articles like this as one of my favorites. Here's why economists don't expect trillions of dollars in economic stimulus to create inflation, published by CNBC, July 23rd, 2020. It's one of those things I saw as a screenshot on Twitter, and I go, that's uh got to be a fake article. I got to look that up. And here it is right there. No shame, no retraction, no apologies, no mass firings at CNBC. No, thank you so much, Austrian School and George Mason University. We've been wrong for decades. What else uh, do we have to learn? It's, uh, it, it's incredible. It's, uh, it, it's all around us. Any tips for people who want to do their best to not get manipulated by propaganda? So at the end of the book, we, we offer a few different potential solutions for combating propaganda. And the, the piece that I think is probably most relevant for um, kind of every everyday individuals is to be skeptical of the information that you are receiving, um, to not take the information that you're receiving necessarily at face value. So we refer to it as kind of a like citizen inoculation, if you will. Um, the, the, the difficulty with that, though, and one of the things that we highlight is that oftentimes, 
even if people want the relevant information, it's oftentimes difficult or even impossible for people to acquire that information, even if they really want to get it. So that example that I mentioned a few minutes ago related to the TSA is a relevant example. Um, you can't get that data. And it's not just lay citizens who don't have access to that kind of data. Those types of information asymmetries that I also referenced a few minutes ago, that applies at multiple levels of government. And so if you're a member of Congress and there's certain information that you want, you may not be able to access that either. The paid patriotism piece that I mentioned is uh, a relevant example there. So paid patriotism, if people aren't particularly familiar, um, the Department of Defense has spent for, again, a couple of decades, um, money paid outfits like various teams of the NFL, the National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, NASCAR, to engage in patriotic displays. And so a lot of times, like if you've ever seen, uh, you know, the National Guard singing the national anthem or a full field flag display or a surprise family homecoming, oftentimes those are not genuine patriotic displays, but instead were things that were bought and paid for by the Department of Defense. So how does this relate to congressional oversight and co Congress uh, not having all the information? The best information that we have on paid patriotism in the post 9-11 period comes from the late Senator John McCain and uh, Jeff Flake's office out in Arizona. There is one report that came out in 2012. It's called Tackling Patriotism. And that is a valuable report because it actually gives us data but it acknowledges up front that it is woefully incomplete. Like it's missing years of data that we just simply don't have. And so they're not able to access that data either. Um, now, whether or not that data has actually been kept or not, I, that's not clear to me. So we have, we don't necessarily always have this ability to, to figure out what, what we have and what we don't. And it's not always easy for us to get, but encouraging people to be, skeptical in the information that they receive from from really just the the channels that they get. So that doesn't mean that you have to be like wearing a tinfoil hat and, you know, thinking like everything that you are seeing is a lie and everything that you are seeing is propaganda, but not taking everything that you're receiving maybe at face value is a healthy, helpful thing for people who want to be informed and educated participant, 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 Try that again, participatory citizens. One of my favorite examples was how Adam Kinzinger is so uppity about how there's misinformation out there that we have to tackle. So uh, Russia goes in in February and, uh, you know, uh, everyone's talking about uh, we need to support Ukraine. And this guy, Sam Hyde, like this comedian, puts a picture of his face on a video game and says the ghost of Kiev is flying and killing all these Russians. And Adam Kinzinger retweets and says, look how cool this is. Viva Ukraine and all this stuff. He fell for the biggest it. one. The only reason I mention that is we're always told, well, uh, there's uh, the information asymmetry in the marketplace, and that's why government needs to step in and, and regulate it. As though there isn't a difference in the amount of information politicians and citizens have. It's like people are so dumb 
that they can't have the right to make their own decisions. Also, they should have the right to vote on decisions that are imposed on everyone else. It, it all comes full circle. And, and that's why I think uh, you and uh, Dr. Coyne harnessing uh, or rather harmonizing the importance of foreign policy and domestic policy is so important. Uh, finally, uh, any uh, b major uh, lessons from Tyranny Comes Home, the domestic fate of U.S. militarism that uh, people should be aware of? So one of the things that we highlight in that book is again, the, the domestic consequences of foreign intervention and how it is that even governments that are well constrained domestically can have those constraints eroded as a result of foreign intervention. And so a lot of the contemporary types of policy hot buttons that we that we look at um, are, are all relevant and related to those foreign policy interventions. So to give two just very contemporary ones, current discussions about surveillance all have links to foreign intervention. So people who are concerned about, you know, the use of various surveillance technologies domestically, those have their roots in various foreign interventions. People who are concerned about police militarization and just policing in general, um, so use of SWAT teams or the use of other military tactics, that as well has very, very clear links to foreign interventions. And so these types of very real, very intense policy debates that we are having right now are very much connected to that foreign policy space. And so recognizing those consequences is helpful and then is something that we should really think about the next time that we hear or someone is suggesting additional foreign interventions. Because one of the things that we highlight throughout the book is that a lot of times these consequences, they're not immediate they're still very much tied to that initial foreign intervention, but the the fruit of that, so to speak, might not be seen for, you know, five, 10, even 20 years down the road after you've had kind of the time for the, the groundwork to be laid and then these various things coalesce. When it comes to, uh, if you ask people, should we be thankful for farmers? They'll say, of course, farmers make food and without food, we die. But we don't have this round-the-clock propaganda campaign about how farmers can do no wrong, and when a farmer tells you to do something, you blindly obey them, because without them we'd starve. Yet when it comes to the police and military, it's literally like to question them is to hate your country. Yet, blindly supporting wars in places like Afghanistan, where the Taliban took over after 11 days in a 20-year war, it turns out the Patriots should have been negotiating with the Taliban for bin Laden in like 2001. So when it comes to how can people say, oh, all right, look, Abigail Hall and Chris Coyne are right about this, but I am so terrified of being seen as a guy who hates the troops, seen as a coward and a traitor. What advice do you have for that person? It's really difficult. So when I've told people, I was like, if it's it's really socially awkward to be the person who sits down during the standing salute to the military during the hockey game. Um, and I say that from personal experience, being the person who is sitting down <laughs> during these things. Mm -hmm. um, it's socially very awkward. Um, and there's actually some other, there's a journalist who in the aftermath of 9-11, when I think this was right after the US invaded Afghanistan, and it was the national anthem and he was with his adult son and his adult son was wanting to sit down. And he basically was like, 
I don't want to get beaten up today. Like, let's just go along to get along. And so that is one of the, in the book, we talk about the functions of propaganda is kind of to create these shared expectations of what it is that people should do and shouldn't do. Um, I think one of the things that, um, and it's one of the things that I try to explain to people who sometimes are, make, <laughs> they listen to what I have to say and they say, well, you hate members of the military or they'll say you hate police. And my ace in the hole is always, well, my husband is a Marine veteran. So like, clearly I don't hate them all <laughs> because I married, I married a guy who has, uh, who has military experience. Um, but beyond that, to be a bit more, um, a bit more serious about it is that there is a profound difference between loving your country and loving your government. So I like and have a very strong passion for the ideals of um, you know, liberalism in the classical sense of people being able to have autonomy to freely engage with other human beings. I have very strong skepticism and I have very strong feelings about the actions of my government. And those two things I think we can talk about is not necessarily being the same entity. Um, you can talk about people who are operating within spaces. So you can talk about, you know, in, you can talk about individual police officers and not assume that every person who is a police officer is terrible, but recognize that there are some problematic institutional structures with the uh within the, within the realm in which they are operating. You can do the same same kind of thing. Um, but also, I genuinely think that healthy skepticism about all layers and levels of, say, like the military is is important. Um, I don't, I said, I don't have anything profound in terms of like, this will get you out of <laughs> any argument where people might be really upset with you. Um, but those are the things that I typically tend to think about. And the the things that I typically will offer to people when having this kind of conversation. Well, yeah, just recognizing that the state is not the society. It's a parasite within the society. I think that's uh, that that's uh, fine. Did you come across any uh, civilian numbers when you were doing uh, research with drones? Because I remember hearing that 90% of people killed by the drones are not the targets. And even the targets have like this ridiculous six degrees from bin Laden kind of justification. Uh, but did you come across any civilian numbers in your research? So, so there's some. So in, in my original work, there's the, the best data that I could find related to civilian casualty numbers. Those numbers are really difficult for us to find for a couple of reasons. So um, one, that data is likely not actually kept for maybe some obvious reasons and maybe some not so obvious ones. Um, on the one hand, if you have those types of numbers, then you might theoretically at some point have to make them available. The other thing too, is that it's actually like, if you're conducting say a, a drone strike in rural Pakistan or in Yemen, you're not exactly going to go out immediately after and then try to like take a complete accounting. So we have a, uh, a data gathering issue. Um, now you do have things like if I want to read like the Yemeni newspaper, I'm going to get one number. If I get numbers from the United States, I'm going to see something completely different. Um, the truth is probably somewhere within the middle of those. The other problem that we have with computing or with getting an understanding of civilian casualty data 
is the way that the military has historically defined a military target. So if you are a military aged male within a strike zone, so military aged male read like 15 to 65 and you happen to be within the strike zone, then you're considered oftentimes a military target. And so when you define away civilians because you happen to be male and in the vast majority of age range or the mass, vast majority of ages for your life, then you're by definition a combatant. And so we have we have a few different difficulties there. Um, but the information that we do have suggests exactly what you pointed out, that oftentimes the uh, the target that is ultimately neutralized is the language that is often used is not the intended target and that oftentimes we do have a substantial number of civilian casualties, which cuts against this idea that UAVs are, you know, like this kind of surgical like tool, in which case you can operate them with just this incredible precision. People often forget that the there, even if that's the case, they're only as good as the intelligence that they're operating on. And there's a whole bunch of other issues related to the type of intelligence that oftentimes is being acted upon within these various scenarios in the Middle East specifically. We have about five minutes left. Thank you for being so generous with uh, your time. Uh, what can people learn from previous uh, foreign interventions? Let's just talk about America because the audience is mostly American and uh, the uh, American regime is provoking war with both Russia and China at this time. So let's just focus on this for now. Uh, what can we learn uh, historically and apply it to the present when it comes to uh, the Donbass and Taiwan? So when we think about the United States track record with foreign intervention, it's ultimately genuinely terrible. Now, I have sat on panels. I have sat on debates with people who will immediately, they'll hear that and their first instinct will be to bring up, well, but World War II. And my response to that is always, if you have to go back to 1945 to have an example of a foreign intervention that was worthwhile, given the cornucopia of foreign interventions undertaken by the United States, that is an awful argument from a statistical point. So, I would say that the, the general takeaway from looking at all U.S. foreign interventions is that they do not work. You cannot export democracy at gunpoint. You cannot impose top-down regime change in a way that is going to stick, so to speak, the way, the way that you want it to. Um, now, that's not to say that occasionally you might not see something where you have intervention that could be successful. So again, people will point to like Germany and Japan. Um, Chris Coyne, my co-author in his book After War, does a really nice discussion of why examples like Germany and Japan are not really relevant examples in the types of intervention that people are typically talking about because the institutional structures in those places are uh, are different. They had kind of the pre-existing institutions already. So I would say that the takeaway is that foreign intervention by and large is not effective at achieving its goals. And I would also say that the consequences of those interventions are not just the dollars that are spent. It's not just the lives that are lost. And those lives are remarkably important. And I don't want to downplay those at all. 
the other consequences though are very serious and they're very numerous and we can't know oftentimes what those consequences are prior to their prior to them manifesting so again like police militarization being one such example yeah, and that's a perfect example, the Second World War, of only mentioning the benefits on the back end. They go, okay, there were tens of millions of deaths, and there were a lot in Germany and Japan alone, and we gave half of Europe to Stalin, and the communists took over in China. So can we stop bragging about this thing and using it as an example? The good war killed tens of millions of people. That's the one that they brag about. And uh, this is supposed to be patriotic to uh, just uh, blindly uh, obey this tyranny. Uh, when it comes to the full list of uh, of interventions, uh, do you know anywhere where we could find like an actual oh list? <laughs> um, a full list of interventions. Actually, um, some current research I'm working on has me trying to come up with a comprehensive list of U.S. interventions yeah. into Latin America. Mm -hmm. And that task I have determined is almost impossible. And let me explain why. Um, because you have to have some definition of an intervention. So if you're talking about boots on the ground military type of intervention, I'm sure that there are lists where you can easily pull that information, assuming that we know that military troops have actually been deployed there. So taking, taking that as the caveat. But then there are other things, too. So if you're talking about covert, covert operations, so if the CIA backs a coup, does that count as an intervention? Or if you are engaged in more what we would call like soft interventions. So if you're attempting to influence elections or you're attempting to, um, you know, use foreign aid as like a, a diplomatic means, does that count as a foreign intervention? And so a lot of those things it's going to depend kind of on what exactly that people are looking for. I don't know of any comprehensive list that includes all of those things, but if someone out there who is listening does, please tell me <laughs> because I would desperately, desperately want to see it, even if it's in very rough form. The website is abigailrhall.com. You will also have a link to the website, which uh, collects all her papers. What is it? SSRN? SSRN.com. Um, and I will just, I will tell people too, that like you can find a lot of people's research on that website and it's not going to be gated like you would get at, at a journal. A lot of it's earlier drafts than maybe the final one, but as someone who's written quite a few papers, oftentimes there's not a huge difference between what's posted on SSRN and what ultimately winds up in the journal. So it'll, it'll give you, get you what you want to know. Thanks to everyone for watching Keith and I Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Dr. Hall, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Keith. The United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. We Ukraine. People of Ukraine, this is your moment. Your fight is our fight. 2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Good. So uh, I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you think what in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. To Ukraine for my third visit in five weeks last Tuesday in support of these very goals, this time conducting parallel coordinated high-level diplomacy with EU High Representative Kathy Ashton. Since Ukraine's independence in 1991, the United States has supported Ukrainians as they build democratic skills and institutions, as they promote civic participation and good governance, all of which are preconditions for Ukraine to achieve its European aspirations. We've invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals that will ensure a secure and prosperous and democratic Ukraine. Uh, we're going to go back and tell our colleagues what Russia's up to and the, and the Baltics, uh, what they're doing in the Ukraine. We're going to get briefed about Georgia. We hope to make 2017 a year of offense. We believe that Putin has hacked into our elections in America, that he's trying to undermine democracy all over the world, and it's time for new sanctions to hit him hard as an individual, his energy sector, his banking sector. It is time to push back against Putin, but be a better friend to our allies over here, including Georgia. Uh, this is a very important trip. We just left Ukraine, uh, where we've seen firsthand uh, what happens uh, when Russia uh, crosses over into a country's independence, and we saw it in our own election uh, with the attempt to influence our election. We will be working for much tougher sanctions against Russia. They uh, attacked the United States of America. The hacking was an attack and we should be treated as such and we think their financial institutions and other aspects of the Russian economy should be addressed and we will strongly urge our colleagues to enact more meaningful and stronger sanctions against Russia because of their attack on the United States of America.